0: Well, this is it. We are at the end of an eight-week journey uh, of a sermon series that we have called Foundation. Uh, It has been our goal and our purpose over the last eight weeks to walk through uh, some foundational beliefs about Christianity and uh, what the Christian faith is and who we are as a people of God. And we have uh, explored uh, many truths. We've explored about who God is uh, as He exists as as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've uh, Uh, We've explored who we are and what is the human experience. We've explored the church. Who are we as the people of God? We uh, last week talked about what is the Bible. Uh, We've been on quite a journey. And uh, my hope for all of this uh, in this whole series is, is first of all, that you have gained new information. I hope that you have learned something uh, through this process and through this journey. Uh, But it doesn't just stop at, my hope is, you've learned something and gained more information. I hope that what you have learned has served to form and shape who you are. I hope that it has served to grow your faith. And I hope that through all of this, that you have fallen more in love with the gospel and the story of Jesus Christ and what he's doing in the world. And so today, what I wanted to do is I want to, in many ways, tie all of it together uh, many of the pieces we 'll kind of be bringing back to understand uh, and then and, and use it as an opportunity to talk about the future the future, uh, because ultimately what it boils down to is as we 've learned these different truths about Christianity, uh, the real bottom line becomes how do we begin to align ourselves to these truths. These truths don't just exist in a vacuum. Uh, They don't just exist for for good theological conversation. They exist to form and shape our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so we want to align ourselves to these truths. And so this morning as we talk about the future and as we kind of bring all these things uh, together, I want to give you the bottom line. I want to give you the answer and then unpack it. Sound pretty good? All right. So here it is uh, when we talk about the future. Central to the Christian faith is the belief that God is bringing about a brand new world and it is bursting forth right in the middle of this one. That is to say that hopefully you caught on to a theme about the, the music that we sang this morning. Uh, the, all of them were future-oriented. They talked about a world where, where there's no weeping or crying or darkness or pain. And, and it, we, we talked about, we, we sang about how God is, is going to, to hold us fully and completely. And, and there's probably, many of you had one of two responses. You, you responded in great hope, longing for that world. And at the very same time, you recognized, I don't think that world is yet here. And so we sang about what is to come. But we also sing about a truth that this world that we described is not just relegated to the future, but that it is right now breaking in. That this new world that God is building is right now bursting in our midst. I have made the claim that our faith is deeply personal and yet profoundly corporate. And I want to unpack that just a little bit this morning because when we talk about the future, we have to understand what God is doing for us personally and what God is doing for us in, uh, in the world and for us personally. And so what I tried to say uh, in the salvation message is that God is, is doing something profoundly in us and for us. And that is to say that the way in which we have seen salvation is often as a personal transaction between us and God. That if we just place our faith in God, then, then we were, we'll, be, we'll be good, we're, we're seen in right light, and all of these things. And what I tried to say in our message about salvation is that, yes, this is absolutely true. But what we often leave out is that God is doing something on a much grander scale, that the effects of our sin have reached beyond just ourselves and into creation itself. And therefore, the grace of God and the redemption of God also seeks to redeem that creation. So I would want to put it this way. While we have always seen salvation as a personal transaction between us and God, salvation is actually uh, what God is doing in the world And then central to that is that God is placing us in right relationship with him. In other words, your personal salvation has within it a context of the redemption of the world and what God is doing, broadly speaking. Does that make sense? And so our our faith is both profoundly personal There is a personal relationship that is made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, at the same time, God desires to do something much larger in the world. He seeks to redeem us and free us from the effects of sin. And so what he has done is he has called together a group of people called the church that would go out into the world and proclaim the good news of this redemption. And so the questions that I want to ask and and try to seek to explore or answer and kind of the roadmap that I want to do this morning is then uh, how do we get there and what does this new world look like? And what does this new world look like? We have used as the the structure for our topical study our belief statement as a church. And uh, our belief statement ends with this phrase. We believe Christ will return... To complete his work of redemption in the world and to judge the living and the dead. We believe that Christ will return as king to complete his work of redemption in the world and to judge the living and the dead. So let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, the first phrase, we believe that Christ will return as king. Uh, many of you will, will immediately respond, well wait, wait a second, isn't Christ already king? Isn't Christ already fully in charge Uh, yes Christ is the king but we have to recognize that in his kingship his will the will of the king is not always being done in the world did you know that some of you have have been taught that everything that happens in the world is precisely as God intends it. So if you find yourself in a difficult spot, if you find yourself grieving the loss of a relationship, if you find yourself uh, grieving the loss of a loved one or whatever it is, whatever challenge you may be facing, you have probably heard that this was God's plan for you. And yet, what I want to declare to you this morning is that not everything in the world is precisely as God intends. In other words, God is not up in in the sky somewhere, holding puppet strings, causing all sorts of evil in the world. Let's just be honest. There are some things that are just evil, and God isn't behind them. Some people might say, well, where was God on 9-11? And some people would say, oh, well, well, that was part of God's plan. Other people might say God was absent. And the truth is actually somewhere right in the middle where God was not the person behind that. That was evil. But God was right there at ground zero providing hope, restoration, strength, grace, and mercy. See, we need to recognize that God is king. Christ is king. But his will... Is not being played out perfectly in the world. We have to realize that. And we have to understand that. And so there are forces in the world that are opposing God at every turn. There are forces in the world that are opposing God's work in your life. Some of you have walked into church for the very first time today. Maybe you, uh, maybe you haven't been to church in a very long time. You, you find yourself in a very difficult place in your life, and so you came to church just kind of as a last-ditch effort. We'll see. Let's give this Jesus thing a try, and I hope it works. And you need to know that God is for you, that God is working in your life, that God believes in you, And you also need to know, though, that there are are lies that the enemy wants to try to tell you to derail what God is doing in your life. And so we we, we live in this world where the will of God is, is done and where the will of God goes undone. Are you with me? We have to understand that to understand the world in which we now live. If we're going to understand the future, we have to live, we have to understand the world in which we live right now. And the New Testament talks a lot about this, these two ideas, this, this, the age that is here, the, the present age, the current age, and then it also talks about the age to come. And, and so we find all over in the New Testament, this is just a sampling of, of some of those passages that, that talk to us that there is a, a present age, but yet there's, at the very same time, there is this hope for the future. There is this age to come where we live in this sense where, where the will of God isn't being played out perfectly, and yet the will of God is also done sometimes, the, the scripture calls That this age and the age to come. And sometimes, oftentimes, actually, the scripture refers to the present age as the present evil age. And and then sometimes than the age to come. Matthew, let me give you just a sampling of this truth from scripture. Matthew chapter 12 says, anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Now packed in that passage of scripture is all kinds of things. Uh, but what the point that I wanna make from that passage is that there's this age and then the age to come. Luke chapter 18, verses 29 through 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home, uh, left home or wife or brother or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 18 through 21. This is Paul praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ in the town of Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. We're going to talk about that hope Today and and the riches of the glorious inheritance of his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him as the right hand in the heavenly realms. And and that power is far above rule or authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. If you were a Jewish person growing up in the first century, uh, you would have seen these two ages in a very particular way, and you you would have seen them like this. Give me just a second. You would have seen them like this, where the old age did nothing but touch the new age. That is to say that there was a very linear pattern in which we were living in the old age and then the Messiah came and the, old, the new age was immediately ushered in. But this isn't the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is this, that the two ages actually overlap that there's this this messy middle ground that we live in, that, that, that this world is, is shining with, with hope and a future and, and the goodness of God and the grace of God. And yet, at the very same time, this world experiences tremendous evil and darkness. And we live in the kind of world where people drive planes into buildings and walk into movie theaters and start opening fire. We live in this kind of mixed world where the old age, age is still present but the new age is breaking in does that make sense this is the world in which we live and so what we must do is learn then how do we live in these two ages and how do we have hope for the future well the bible talks about how the forces of evil that are present in our world it declares that those forces are already defeated, but they're still playing. They're already defeated, and yet they're still present. And that is to say that, that, that although evil is still here because we live in the middle of the ages, there will come a day in the future where evil is swallowed up by the new age. This is a tremendous hope for you and I. And if we understand this truth, if we understand the central biblical teaching that God is building a brand new world right in the middle of this broken one, then all of a sudden the fruit of hope begins to bloom in our lives. That is to say, there is no such thing as a hopeless Christian. We may struggle to find hope. We may struggle to grapple with hope. But I'm telling you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have trusted on him for your salvation, there is a hope available to you that is sure, that is, is secure, that is a promise. It's a, it is a sure foundation of the world that God is building and, and blur- bursting forth and blooming right in the middle of your brokenness. Let me give you two illustrations. We live in the middle of these ages, but the Bible talks about how the forces of evil are already defeated, and yet they're still playing. Two illustrations to communicate this. It, you could think of it as like a, a blowout in a sporting event. The final buzzer hasn't sounded, but the thing was over a long time ago, right? I mean, you, you just you, you turn the TV off. You're not interested anymore. You don't have to watch the highlights because this thing is over, even though the buzzer hasn't sounded that's what the scripture says about evil the buzzer hasn't sounded but evil's already defeated or or think of it like this way when jesus took upon the our sin upon himself and he died on the cross and then three days later he was resurrected to finally defeat death and demonstrate victory over sin that was a deposit for the new world that god is bringing about it's not an iou it's not a promise it's a deposit and what a deposit says is it is a promise of future payment, right? When you make a deposit on something, you're not, you're not giving an IOU to the bank. You're not just writing the, the, the bank a piece of paper that says, I promise to do this. You're putting down a deposit that guarantees that you will pay that. And so whether you are a sports fan or a financial person, whatever, makes, whatever illustration makes sense to you, Uh, We live in this mixed age, and yet at the very same time, the Bible talks about how this new world will swallow up the evil that we live in now. And this provides for us tremendous hope. Christ will return one day as king. The, The truth of the scripture, though, is that this new world won't just burst forth like a big bang. It doesn't just come in all at once, but it builds slowly, and it increases. And part of the beauty of the church and part of the beauty of the people of God is that God has actually called you and I to participate in the new world that he's bringing about. Did you hear me? If you heard me, you'd be more excited. So I'll say it again. God has called you and I to participate in the new world that he's bringing about. God is, in, God is not just saying, hey, believe in me, and then, and then you're, just, you're off the hook. He says, place your trust in me. And then with that is an invitation to go and build a brand new world. And so it builds slowly and he calls upon the people of the church and says would you come along with me would you participate with me because i've created this world and it, and it was broken because of disobedience but let me call you to come out of disobedience and into obedience that we might build a new world together as the people of god that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. You see, we have reduced the Christian faith to a personal transaction with God. We have made it a, a, a financial exchange, and it is so much more than that. It's a new world that God is building, and he invites us to be a part of it. The rule and reign of God is, is now being established, but it's not yet here in all of its fullness. When we have the two interlapping circles that I showed you, well, the theologians call this the already and the not yet. We're already experiencing the goodness of God's new world, but it's not yet here in all of its fullness. And so he calls us and invites us to participate in that. And so this is why uh, when Jesus tells parables about the kingdom of God, he uses parables and and descriptions. And he says the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man planted in his field. And though it was the smallest of all the seeds, when it grows, it becomes the largest of the garden plants. And this is why he he uses uh, the description or the parable of yeast. He says, the kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took and she mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked its way all through the dough. The kingdom of God is, is not something that bursts forth suddenly, but something that God is building right now through the church. You see how all of this ties together. And it ties together because like I've said all along, the gospel isn't just a set of independent truths that don't intersect or interact with one another. The gospel is a story. It's an arc. And we must place ourselves within that. And so Christ will come to finish his work of redemption in the world. We've, we state it that way in our belief statement because it, we believe and implicit to that is this truth. His work of redemption in the world has already begun. And so Christ will return to finish, to pay it off to the deposit, where the final buzzer will ring. And finally, Christ and his will will be done completely and perfectly in the world to fully establish his kingdom. Is that good news? Well, we're not done yet. Then we say in our belief statement that, that uh, Christ will judge the living and the dead, and, and this idea of judgment has been uh, totally misunderstood. Totally misunderstood. In fact, when I say judgment, some of you cower in your seats because a lot of times when we when we talk about judgment, we we see that this is the picture that we get in our head that, that God is like this really big bad guy and people are waiting in line at the pearly gates and it's a really long line (laughs) right and then and then the the way that we picture judgment is that god saying with a smile on his face to hell with you and you and you as though god likes that right that's the we, When we think of judgment, we think that God puts his, his bad guy hat on, right? Like, we read the New Testament, we're like, God is love. And we talk about grace and mercy and forgiveness and all this. And then, and then it's like, oh, judgment. That's like, that's like the mean guy God. It's like, it's like the Old Testament God came back all of a sudden. As though the Old Testament and the New Testament and the God of judgment are different gods. This is how we've understood it. And so let me, let me just really briefly talk to you about judgment. I want, to, I want to change your view of judgment this morning. And I want you to think of judgment not as God, with, as, as, a, as a big, mean guy, but as I want you to think of judgment as a sorting out, as a sorting out. The Bible also tells in, in Matthew chapter 13 of a parable where the kingdom of God is like a net, where it catches all kinds of fish. And once they're brought on shore, there's a sorting out of the fishes. I want you to think of judgment as a sorting out. In order to bring about this new world that God is building, and in order to fully defeat evil, God has to put an end to evil once and for all. There has to come a point in history where evil no longer is present or playing the game do you understand Does that makes sense i mean there has to come this point where evil is finally defeated it's already defeated and yet there has to come a point where that where that defeat is solidified applied made real in our lives and this is the judgment of god judgment is not is not a movie screen in heaven playing for all to see of every bad thing you've ever done in your life. Have, has it, have anyone ever told you that? Like, like, be good, because eventually, your do- the documentary of your life and all the bad things that you've ever done are gonna, is going to be shown to the world at the pearly gates, and you will be shamed and embarrassed That is not judgment. Judgment is Christ sorting the evil out in order to bring about the fullness of his goodness. You with me? And so for those of you that have placed your faith in Christ, judgment is not something to be feared, but something to be welcomed. Because when God judges... If you have placed your faith in Christ and his, his blood has covered your sins and you have trusted on Him for your salvation, then all of a sudden, judgment is a sorting out of the struggle in your life. You struggle. You, your sin has been forgiven in Christ. Your Your future is secure in Him. But judgment is God saying... Not shame on you for all the ugly things that you've ever done, but let me allow the fullness of your redemption and the blood of Christ to cover you so that you can walk into eternity having been fully redeemed by Christ and through your faith in him. That's a better picture, isn't it? And then evil, though, must be sorted out. And so for those of you that are here today and you've not yet placed your faith in Christ, the scripture is very clear and I I don't want to be offensive in this statement, but I want to be bold because it comes right from the word of God. It says, if you've not yet placed your faith in God, you are already stand condemned. The evil must be sorted out. The evil must be defeated and brought to the side. And so... This idea of judgment is not God as a big, mean guy, but God bringing, birthing his new world finally in all of its fullness. Are you with me? Uh, If you've ever seen the birth of a child, you will recognize that there is pain in new life. I thought for sure I'd get an amen from the moms around here. There's pain in new life. And so that doesn't mean that judgment is like this, this oh happy day or, or all this, you know, things to, to, to be giddy about. But at the same time, if we see judgment as this sorting out, then the people of God ought to welcome judgment because it will sort out all the evil, all the struggle in our lives. And yet for those who have not yet placed your faith in Christ, the scripture says you already stand condemned. And, and, and in that moment, God will sort that out. And so... And the result of God's final judgment will be the birth of the brand new world. Of the brand new world. Well, let's talk about this new world. Um, you have been told, I would imagine, that this new world that God is, is bringing about um, is most likely has another geographical location within our time-space universe. That is to say that the many times you have been told that God will scrap this earth and in favor of a new one that is somewhere else. And most often in Christian popular culture, what we talk about is that being up. And so implicit to that statement is that if, if you were to go high enough... Long enough, you would eventually run into the heavenly city. In fact, there was an astronaut who flew to space and upon flying to space said, I see no heavens, therefore there must be no God. And what a disgrace and what a misunderstanding uh, you've, you've been told that the new world is equal to another world. It's a common understanding of Christianity for many years that heaven or this new world that we've been talking about is an altogether different place or world or earth. It occupies a different physical space in the universe. And this, of course, has led many people to believe that the entire goal of the Christian life is to leave or forsake this place in favor of the new place. And so the, the entire goal of the Christian life is to get... Out of here and into this other place. But yet, I hope that you have, have caught on that this is not the story at all. This is, this is not the story of the gospel in any way, shape, or form. Uh, in, in fact, that, that that system of belief is has more uh, discommon with, with Christianity than it has in common. Uh, with Christianity and the foundation of our our faith. And so when we talk about this new world, when we talk about a new creation, we're not talking about a different world or a different creation. We're talking about this world, this earth, this place redeemed and made new. Not a different one, but this place made new. I understand that there may be some uh, a new idea for some of you, but stick with me as we walk through this. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, says that anyone who places their faith in Christ is a new creation. He does not mean that upon placing your faith in Christ, you are destroyed and then replaced with a better version of yourself. That you are physically destroyed, physically incinerated, and then... Uh, and then replaced with the new version of yourself. What he means is that upon placing our faith in Christ, we are made so new. We are changed to such a degree that the, the redemption of Christ is applied to our lives in such a form and fashion that we cannot be described in any other way other than new. And the same is true for what God desires to do in the world. For any of you who have placed your faith in Christ, you are a new creation. And remember, salvation is not just about a personal transaction with God, but central to that is what God is doing in the world, and then inside of that is that we are made in right standing before God. The same is true here. When we talk about a new world, we're not talking about a different world. We're talking about this world redeemed. And so it is not in the heart of God to destroy this place in favor of a new place. It uh, It is in the heart of God to redeem this place. For those of you who are people of faith and you have experienced God's redemption, you realize that placing your faith in Christ and being made into a new creation isn't always easy it's glorious and it's beautiful but it isn't easy some some of you have been have been sold Jesus as though Jesus were a product that you could like wipe on your life and then everything would be fine right you've heard that and and then and then it's like sermons sound like infomercials for Jesus uh but But anyone who has walked through it knows that God forming us and shaping us and working in us to bring about this new person is often difficult. That redemption isn't always easy. It's beautiful, it's glorious, but it isn't always easy. And so it is with bringing about the new world. Bringing about something new requires work and surrender and it requires that you forsake some things and it can be difficult but so it will be with the world and so if we believe this this idea that the the god's new world is actually replacing this world and this world will be destroyed uh, rather than redeemed then the goal is to get out of this place and get into that new place right i mean that would be obvious but if we understand that that the story talks about the redemption of this place then all of a sudden that leads not to evacuation, but that leads to commission. Commission. If we understand the future in this way that we've been talking about, then the goal of the Christian life doesn't become get to heaven when you die, which is code for get out of this hell hole. But the goal is to participate in God's redemptive work in the world, knowing that you have a sure post-mortem hope. In that you will get full participation in the world that God is bringing about. Are you with me? Does that make sense? The goal then is to participate in God's redemptive work in the world, knowing that you have a sure post mortem hope in which you will get full participation in this brand new world. It's not evacuation, it's commission. And for too long, the Christian faith has all been all about evacuation. Get out of here to go over there. And that isn't the story at all. God wants to redeem the world. And as part of that, he wants to make you brand new as well. Well, what does this new world look like? Is this fun? I'm having fun. You guys seem like you didn't get enough sleep last night, but I'm having fun. What does God's new world look like? Let me read you some passages. Uh, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Let me give you a little bit of context. The nation of Israel, which is God's people, it's the nation that he builds up in the Old Testament in order to bring about Jesus Christ. It is the nation that God builds up so that out of that will come Jesus Christ so that his redemption and his people might break totally open that anyone would from any nationality and any descendancy might come to faith in Christ and so this is the nation of Israel God's people they have been exiled from their homeland the nation has been split into two a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and they are now facing military defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. And so God raises up a prophet to speak a good word for the people of God of a future that will one day come. And this is what he says in Isaiah 65. And I want, I want you to understand the context. An exiled nation split in two facing military defeat. That's a bad day. Okay. And into that situation, into that difficulty, into that mountain that they could never climb on their own, the prophet of God speaks these words of hope. Beginning with verse 17 in Isaiah 65. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered And nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Can you imagine that as a nation split in two, facing military defeat and exile, can you imagine that there's some weeping? And can you imagine that there's some crying going on among the people of God? And yet the prophet speaks, there is a day coming in the future. There is a world that will burst forth in which no more crying and no more weeping will be heard. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. For he who dies at a hundred will thought to be a mere Youth, and he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed, for they will build houses and dwell in them, they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit, for no longer will they build houses and others live in them. Or will they plant and others eat? Part of being in exile is that you were often put into slavery. You would build houses for other people, and you would plant vineyards for other people. And you would you would build and you would work and you would toil, but never enjoy. The fruit of your work. And so the prophet speaks these words They will build houses and then you'll dwell in them. You will plant vineyards and then you will enjoy their fruit. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. For my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. And they will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. And they and their descendants will, will uh, with them. And before they call, I will answer. And while they were still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food because he deserves it. And they will neither harm harm. Nor destroy. I added the, and he, because he deserves it. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. That's the good word that the prophet speaks about this world that is coming. And then Christ comes, dies, resurrected. The church is born, and these people are gathered. And, And then this guy named John. Uh, goes to prison for speaking the word of Christ. And he, uh, in the ancient world, they would often send their prisoners uh, to islands because what are they going to do there? They're on an island. And so they would build prisons on islands. And uh, this guy named John is on an island called Patmos and he receives a vision from God uh, again of the new world that God is bursting forth. And it's found in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, I want to read to you verses 1 through 7, and then I want to go to Revelation 22 and read the first six verses. And this describes this new world that God is bringing about. And it sounds a lot like what the prophet Isaiah said to the exiled nation of Israel. It says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the the first earth had passed away. Now, a lot of times we understand that to be, oh, the passed away, they were destroyed. No, it is the way of the first heaven and the first earth. It is the things that ruled. It's the evil that rules in our world. That is what has been passed away and then redeemed the new heaven and the new earth. For there was no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea. That makes no sense. And for those of you that like the ocean, you're like, I don't like new heaven and new earth. I'll take this one. Right? You mean there's not going to be any surfing in heaven? <laughs> now, we must read this as what it is, uh, which this is apocalyptic literature, ancient apocalyptic literature, in which physical objects often represent realities other than themselves. And in the book of Revelation, the sea represents evil the 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 monsters come out of the sea like pacific rim okay (laughs) some of you know what i'm talking about others of you don't if you don't know what i'm talking about lord bless you Lord bless you. Okay, uh, so evil comes out of the sea. It's, it's often, it's, it's this, that's what happens. And so in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no longer any sea, the Bible says. That's a way of saying code, in code, understand what I'm saying. There's no more evil. There's no more evil. I won't preach all the way through this, but I <laughs> might. And then I saw the holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, see, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy, and they're true. And he said to me, it is done, for I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of life. Turn over to chapter 22. This is what God's new world Looks like, And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And it was as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation's. And no longer will there be any curse. The last time that we heard about a curse on the tree of life is in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And then we get to the very, very end and the curse is removed. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. In the book of Revelation, the mark that you bear on your forehead is a way of speaking about allegiance. So when it talks about the mark of the beast on their forehead, it's where does your allegiance lie? Do you hold your allegiance to the evil one? And then just a couple verses later, it talks about how the people of God were marked on their foreheads. It's not about... Uh, it's not about having a mark, it's whose mark do you bear? And so here it says, they will see his face and everyone in the city will bear the name on their forehead, will hold their allegiance to his name and there'll be no more nights for they will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And the angels said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord of God of the spirit of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I read those passages slowly because I want to I want to allow them to sink in. Church, I want you to hear the good news of the future. I want you to know and to understand that because of the future that is secure in Christ, you and I can walk through any situation and maintain our hope. Are you with me? We have reason for hope. We don't have to search for hope. We don't have to grapple for hope. Hope is given to us in the story of the gospel and through faith in Christ. That if we believe that this is what is happening, if we believe that his new world is bursting forth, that a deposit has been made, that the victory has already been won, then you and I can walk through any situation with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness, with hope. Secure in our lives. That's why I said earlier there's no such thing as a hopeless Christian because the story, the the story of uh, and where it's headed, the future that is secure in this story gives us a sure foundation for our hope. This is the kind of world that God is building, and this is where our hope finds its home. I don't know where you've placed your, your hope. But I hope today that after reading and understanding and seeing the beauty of God's future, that you would place your hope in the person of Christ that is bringing that future about. But it's easy to place our hope in a lot of different things. It's easy to place our hope. In the church, it's easy to place our hope in the people of the church. It's easy to place our hope in in some sort of evacuation plan. But let me tell you, the sure foundation of our hope is the world that God is building and the world that is bursting forth. And it's this kind of world that we read about, where the curse on the tree of life is lifted, where there's no more crying or pain or or darkness the evil has been totally defeated the question then for you and i and what this means ultimately for us is that we have to ask ourselves how do i live right now in ways that will lead me to this future how do i participate in the work that god is doing in the world to bring about this future if that's where the story is headed And we talked about in the Bible passage that I need to find myself in the story. If that's where the story is headed, what part can I play to help get us there? And if the Bible talks about that there's a future in which no one will go thirsty, then it ought to be the work of the church to go and provide clean drinking water to people who don't have it in the world. If it's the the sure future of the world that God is bringing about, that no one will go hungry because the tree of life bears its fruit once a month, then we ought to be about the business of feeding those who are hungry. If the Bible talks about a world that is secure in which every need will be supplied, then the church ought to be going about the work of supplying needs like school supplies, the children whose parents can't afford it this is the work that we ought to be about how do we live right now that will lead us to this future what does the reign and rule and way of god look like when i am wronged when i'm hurt when i experience injustice for we have a hope that will carry us through Everything back in the sermon on, on the human experience, I said that there's uh, a human cycle there 's innocence and then there's a wounding because of sin, and then there's struggle and I said that in christ the the capital s struggle can end but but because we 're human, there will always be a little s struggle that that will always be be grappling back and forth between what w- what we want and what God wants and, and, and doing that 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 dance between those things and, and, and the, the reality is that in God's new world the little s struggle will end all the the evil will be purged sorted out and no longer a reality in our life and so we are invited to participate in the ongoing creative work of god and what he desires to do in the world is that good news I hope that as we've walked through this series, that you have found hope being birthed in your heart in brand new ways. I hope that you have heard things that have challenged previous assumptions. I hope that you, I hope that the Spirit of God has worked in your life to form and shape your faith in a way that will be a brand new start. But not only is the gospel a story, but the gospel is ultimately also an invitation. And so I would invite all of you to not only find your place in the story, but to align yourself with these truths. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.